Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week on the show, we talk with Christian apologist Abdu Murray about freedom, autonomy, post-truth, and why the worldview of Jesus fits best today. We're having this flirtatious dance with truth, but we don't want to marry the truth. We just want to date her. We don't seem to want it as valuable as it really is. So what ends up happening is the culture we're currently seeing is a culture, I call it the culture of confusion. It's a culture that values confusion as a virtue, but clarity is decried as a sin. Hey, it's Isaac here. For all our fellow Canadian friends listening, happy Canada Day. This past Sunday, we celebrated 151 years as a country. And it's good to celebrate and, you know, obviously thank God for much of the freedom and privileges we have here. But let me just say this. If you're a Canadian, uh, if you haven't already done so, make it a priority to pray for our government and our churches. You know, we often forget the power of prayer and God can work significantly through our prayers, which is really humbling and exciting to know. So pray with me for our wonderful country. Now, I'm really happy to have on the show this week, Abdu Murray. He's a Christian apologist who's just released a new book called Saving Truth. We talk about some of the main points from his book, and I know you'll be interested because Abdu does a really good job at showing us really the reflection of our culture's beliefs, which in many cases we've adopted as our own, even as Christians. I'd be surprised if no one leaves this conversation a little convicted, yet really encouraged at the same time. So here's a conversation with Abdu. With me today is Christian apologist Abdu Murray. Abdu is the North American director with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He's written three books and he's done multiple speaking engagements and uh, debates around the world. So it's a great privilege to have you with us today, Abdu. Thanks, Isaac. It's great to be with you. Um, you have a bit of a unique testimony, uh, and although we, we we could fill 25 minutes easily with that, I'm sure, um, I'm wondering if you could kind of share your, your two-minute version for those who have no idea uh, who you are. Sure, absolutely. Appreciate it. Uh, I, basically, I was raised as a, a Shiite Muslim, um, and I was serious about it. I was very uh, serious about Islam. I would have none of this sort of nonsense uh, that, you know, uh, what's true for me is true for me, what's true for you is true for you. I thought Islam was true, and people should believe true things and not false things. And so from a young age, like we're talking middle school, high school, and on and on, I was engaging in conversations with people who weren't from my same faith about why Islam was true and everything else was wrong. Um, so I took it upon myself to study quite a few different worldviews, and I encountered people uh, of two stripes from the Christian perspective. There were most people who didn't know what they were, why they believed what they believed. So when I asked them a question, why do you believe that? They were like, I don't know. Uh, I guess uh, I, I'm a Presbyterian or whatever the denomination was because my parents are. And I'd respond by saying, tradition is not a good reason to trust your eternal soul to a worldview. Have you actually thought it through? And the answer was usually no. And I would begin to launch into my attacks on why Christianity was wrong. But I did it in, in the nicest way possible. It was more conversational. Um, the other people, and there were only a few of them, but they were a blessed few, they actually knew what they were talking about. And then they not only responded to my objections, but they had some objections of their own that I had to respond to. So I began to look into the Christian faith a little bit more because they were the more difficult people to actually sort of, um, uh, sort of pin down. Um, and a funny thing happened on the way to the mosque, as they say, um, and I uh, saw the credibility of the gospel, not only in its historicity, which is one of the pinnacle things in terms of the resurrection of Jesus, not only in terms of the reliability of the Bible, which I think is solid, 
but also in the uh, philosophical and the scientific. And then more personally for me, what really sealed the deal was the existential. You know, the um, it mattered to my life, not just, it wasn't just an intellectual curiosity about a fact that's true. It was true in the, in the most important sense. It actually changed and could change who I was. Now, it took me nine years to get to that point. Not because the answers were hard to find, by the way. They were pretty easy to find. It was that the answers were hard to accept because there's a fundamental shift and change. When truth confronts you, it's not always convenient. It's often inconvenient because it requires change. And Jesus actually specifically says that, that we have to die to ourselves in order to follow him as the way, the truth, and the life. And it took me nine years, but I did get there. And I realized that everything that I was hoping was true in Islam was actually true in the gospel. And that's when I gave my life to Christ. That's so good. And how long now have you been uh, traveling and speaking to multiple different people and all that kind of stuff about this? Yeah, I, so I started off my ministry. I became a believer in 2000. Started off my ministry on a part-time basis I would, as a, as a um, uh, working trial attorney, uh, business lawyer, um, and I was doing it on a part-time sort of on the side thing. Um, pretty early on, like 2004 or so, 2003. Um, but um, it got more and more opportunities, and so now. I do it all over the world. I've been doing that for probably six, seven years now. Um, and then I joined RCIM um, as the North American director about two and a half years ago. And I've been doing that ever since. And I've been blessed with the opportunity to speak in so many diverse places, major universities, uh, influential places where the Christian worldview is not the dominant worldview. And been seeing hearts and minds open and then also blessed with the ability to write, including the book Saving Truth. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So you've just written this uh, new book, which the full title for those listening is Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. So I guess the kind of the quickest and maybe maybe perhaps easiest question is, what is this book about? And maybe what's the problem that you are addressing in this book? Sure, thanks. Um, so the, the title sort of hopefully gives it away a little bit. We're currently enmeshed in a culture, especially in the West, but I'll tell you this, all over the world, as I've seen it, we're, we're having this, uh, this flirtatious dance with truth, but we don't want to marry the truth. We just want to date her. Um, we don't seem to want it uh, as, as, as valuable as it really is. So what ends up happening is the culture we're currently seeing is a culture, I call it the culture of confusion. It's a culture that values confusion as a virtue, but clarity is decried as a sin. Um, and how that works out is, for example, if you're confused sexually, you're a hero. If you're confused morally, well, you're progressive. If you're confused religiously, you know, all roads lead to God kind of a thing, then you're considered tolerant. But if you're clear on the boundaries of sexuality and even gender identity, well, then you're a bigot. If you're clear on moral boundaries, well, then you're regressive. And if you're clear that there's only one true path to God and that that has been offered to all of us, well, that's considered intolerant. So confusion is a virtue. Clarity is a sin, and the reason is is because confusion allows us to play with the edges, you know, and to like not have bright line rules and never see ourselves outside the bounds. There are no bounds, so we can't be outside them because everything is confused and fuzzy. Uh, but clarity requires discernment. Clarity requires the hard work, and also requires us to rein in our preferences. And so what we're seeing now, this, this culture of confusion, uh, Oxford English Dictionary is named in their 2016 Word of the Year. We are in a post-truth culture, 
a culture that values preferences and feelings over facts and truth. So we don't deny that truth exists. We simply don't care if it happens to conflict with our preferences. And so all of us have become sort of these autonomous little gods who have our own little worlds of preference. And the problem I see is that's going to lead to an ultimate chaos. Uh, but truth, we need to save the truth in the mind of the culture so that the culture can actually understand the saving truth of the gospel. Yeah, that's so good. And, you know, I was blessed to receive an advanced copy, and I've started reading Saving Truth and really enjoying it. And I was talking to my wife uh, uh, about this uh, idea. You, you kind of provide a mirror to our culture today uh, in a language that's, you know, not super difficult or anything, which I found it very refreshing to read. It's kind of like the same way when James says that, you know, the Bible is like a mirror that we can see ourselves truly. And there's a there's a sobering reality that comes from that. Now, you've, you've kind of touched on this already, Abdu, but I'm wondering if you could even go a little bit further and just kind of give us an analysis of our culture today in terms of things like truth, autonomy, and freedom. And I, I really found the definitions of autonomy and freedom that you, you kind of explained those and it was really powerful. Yeah, so kind of reflect our culture to us a little bit. Sure, absolutely. So in a post-truth culture where we have this, uh, again, flirtation with the truth, but we only like the truth if it serves our preferences. So when we, want, we have certain, whether it's sexual preferences or identity preferences or just you know, religious preferences or whatever it might be, if the truth happens to conflict with that, well, then we just either ignore it or we twist it a little bit to serve our agenda. Truth is, by definition, that which conforms to reality post-truth culture is not as interested in reality as we are in preferences. But this, we think, is liberating and freedom-inspiring. You know, one of the... Uh, Os Guinness once said that you can tell the health of, uh, of a culture, of Western culture, for example, by its interaction with its most important values. And the most important value that defines Western culture is the idea of freedom and liberty. So how do we interact with freedom? Well, the problem is, is that we say freedom all the time, the freedom to be, stay, do, act, or whatever we want, whenever we want, in whatever way we want. That's not actually freedom. That's autonomy. And autonomy and freedom, we use them synonymously, but they're not the same. Autonomy comes from the two Greek words, autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. So when you're autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. The problem with that is, is that if I'm a law unto myself and I have certain preferences and you or someone else is a law unto themselves and they have conflicting preferences and truth is no longer the determiner of who's right and who's wrong, when we come together in the public square to discuss our ideas, to see who's right and who's wrong, and truth is no longer important, we run a very serious risk of having might and power be the determiners of what's right and wrong. So truth won't decide, power will decide. That will result in chaos, and ultimately, and ironically so, it will result in enslavement, because some voice, some superman, some superwoman will rise up and say, hey, you're all amidst this chaos, I can lead us out of this. And because we're suffering under the chaos, we will gladly give our allegiance to such a person, and before you know it, we're enslaved by our, our own autonomy. How ironic would it be that our own freedom enslaves us? Freedom is different. Of a culture, our culture used to value freedom in its truest forms. Freedom is not boundless. Freedom has to have boundaries. It was Chesterton who said that even art requires limitations. The, the essence of every picture, he says, is the frame. 
you may feel that you're free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, only to find out that you're not actually free to draw a giraffe at all. You may free a camel from his humps, but you'll find that you've actually freed him from being a camel. In other words, whenever you deal with facts and truth, you always deal with limitation. So truth and freedom are linked logically. But Jesus actually says in John 8, verses 31 and 36, that we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. The culture says, you know autonomy, and that will set you free. That's not true. That leads to enslavement. Jesus says truth and freedom are always linked. But then he goes on to make that one more statement when he says, the Son will set you free, and whoever is set free by the Son is free indeed. So if the truth sets us free and the Son sets us free, then the Son is the truth. And so I think that's where we see the issues. The culture has rejected the Son, Jesus, the Son of God, as a source of truth, and in rejecting truth, has rejected freedom in favor of this chaotic idea of autonomy. Yeah, and that, that's so helpful. Thank you. Um, now, y- you say you say in your book, uh, Abdu, that even the church, to some degree, has become in and of this culture of confusion, as you, you coined that a phrase. So, uh, pretty much, how, how so? You know, in what ways has the church kind of succumbed to this? And this was one of the most difficult chapters. I wrote a whole chapter in the book about this. Um, was difficult because it requires tons of self-reflection. And we know we have this mentality now, especially in an extremely polarized Western culture, where whoever they are, if they don't agree with me, they're Hitler or they're Stalin or something like that. Um, so we have this, and no matter if you're on the right or on your, your left, whoever's not on your side is obviously the evil person. So we had this very, very us versus them dichotomy. And I think the church sometimes succumbs to that part of our culture by not realizing something. We were once them. Every redeemed sinner was a sinner. And if that's the case, then we have no right to look at them and say, somehow, I'm I'm better than you morally. We are saved by God's grace, not by our merit. And so how can we look down our nose at anybody? But the church begins to do that sometimes. Instead of reaching out to the culture, we find ourselves reaching down. And that's, I think, a mistake. But how do we do this? Let me give you an example. In the United States, for example, there was this uh, decision in 2015 when the Supreme Court of the United States legalized same-sex marriage across the entire country, the Obergefell decision. I got a bunch of emails and saw my newsfeed popping up with stories about how gay activists were using the Obergefell decision to justify claims to ban the Bible as hate speech across the United States. Well, it took me about three minutes worth of research to find out none of that was true, that yes, somebody had sued Christian publishers in federal court, but it wasn't after the Obergefell decision. It was seven years before, and the case wasn't to ban the Bible. It was for money because they thought that they had experienced emotional damages because of what the Bible actually said. And it was dismissed as frivolous within, I think, 21 days of having been filed. So when you think about this, Christians who might have been well-meaning in the sense of saying we have to protect our religious freedoms actually were willing to, or maybe even inadvertently, fostered a false narrative by clicking share or like on social media. It's far too easy right now. The Christians want to react to the issues of the day with the same speed at which the culture says them. The problem is we are to be people of truth. And if it requires us to be a little slower, but more accurate, I think we have to do that. We cannot contribute to the confusion because like it or not, the integrity of the message is always judged by the integrity of the messenger. And we have to be people of integrity if we are to ever, ever have any hope of clearing up the confusion.
Yeah, and you know what? I I'm wondering if you could even just say a, a couple words on the example used uh, that you take from Matthew seven about the the you know judge not that you may not be judged. Um, I think that's powerful. Yeah, this is the other the pendular swing, isn't it? So the church, in one way, is in and of the culture in its polarizing effect with the us versus them mentality. But then in another way, the church sometimes will actually look at scripture verses and say, "I don't want there to be an us versus them." So we have this pendular swing all the way over to the other side and say, "I don't want to disagree with anybody." So we'll rely on the, probably the most oft misinterpreted phrase of the New Testament when Jesus says, do not judge that you be not judged, for the judgment you use will be used to judge you as well. As if we're saying in Matthew chapter 7, Christians are not to judge anyone's actions or have moral judgments. Of course, it doesn't say that at all. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, but when you do judge or when you judge before you get the speck out of your brother's eye, make sure you remove the log from your own. What he's saying there essentially is, judge, don't judge hypocritically. So if the church is acting in a post-truth manner, we ought to get the post-truth log out of our eye before we get the culture of confusion speck out of its own eye. That's good. But I think often Christians want to like you know misuse Matthew 7 because they don't want conflict. Again, it's preferences over truth, isn't it? We fail to see the rest of the rest of the verse that says, when you judge, judge correctly. That's the issue here. So our preferences to be liked, and so we end up either ignoring or misusing the truth. But if our preference is to be victorious, we do the same. We end up ignoring or misusing the truth. In either way, the church loses. Yeah, that's that's good. Now, in your book, Saving Truth, you, you go on to bring clarity to issues of freedom, which we've talked about a little bit, human dignity, sexuality, science and faith, and, and so on and so forth. There's a lot to dig into there. But I, I'm wondering if you could, Abdu, bring some clarity to one area of your choice in which you think young adults today uh, need most. And I, I even ask, maybe even in Canada, because I know that you do some work in Canada. I remember actually I was at the Apologetics Canada conference at Northview Church in Abbotsford, and you were there a few years or two years ago or a few years ago now. So anyway, so you have been in Canada. Um, yeah, please uh, share me your thoughts there. I'm actually in Canada quite often, and I love uh, being in Canada as a North American director. I help to uh, advance the, the mission and the cause of uh, RZIM in Canada. We just had a wonderful youth event recently where we saw so many youth coming out and asking the important questions. So your, t- your question couldn't be more timely. Um, I think there's two areas of clarity. All of them are important. But there are two areas of clarity that I think are important. They're controversial. So we have to treat them with the utmost sensitivity, but at the same time, we can't shy away from them. And we're going to have to be willing to sort of um, get our hands dirty, as it were, or as we get in, the, get in the ring or get into the civil public square, which now becomes more like a Roman Coliseum than it is a public square. Um, but it's the issues of human dignity and sexuality. See, we often, these are related, I think, because what ends up happening is the culture is confused on these two ideas. And a confused culture wants to affirm human dignity, but then says that we're just either monkeys with big brains or we're chemical machines. Well, how can we have human dignity if we're chemical machines or monkeys with big brains? In fact, how can our professions be noble? It was uh, the famous jurist, uh, Richard Posner, who when asked about his judicial philosophy, He said, as far as I'm concerned, we're just monkeys with big brains, period. Well, if that's the case, how can he possibly be this influential jurist who who adjudicates the affairs among people fairly and honestly with a sense of justice, as opposed to just being a zookeeper who keeps the animals from biting each other? His whole profession loses dignity. And if we want to give people the dignity of their choices, 
then they can't be mere chemical machines that respond to stimuli. No, can they be animals that result that, that just simply act with their baser instincts? They have to be free moral agents. And I think the only basis for that is that, that we are based, we are, our, our image bears God's image, and that's how we have true and human dignity. But that leads into the sexuality question, because there are people who have either wanted or unwanted sexual attractions, whether it's same-sex or it's bisexual or it's just sexually immoral when it comes to heterosexual sex. This, is, this, this thing is real. Autonomy says do whatever you want in whatever way you want, however you feel. Freedom says that there have to be boundaries on things. So I think the Christian perspective is this. The biggest source of confusion I think the culture has is that the Bible stands against sexual expression because the Bible is anti-freedom. The Bible is not anti-freedom. The Bible is anti-autonomy because autonomy leads to chaos. Freedom leads to true, I think, identity of who you really are. So the Bible says that in his image, God created man and male and female. In his image, he created them. In other words, being male is to bear the image of God. Being female is to bear the image of God. And sexuality within the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman affirms the inherent dignity in the image of God in the female and in the male. Because to swap them out and interchange them as you please actually doesn't affirm the dignity of the male and the female. It actually disconfirms it and says they're not at all special in and of themselves. But beyond that, there is the, the, the beauty of the reflection of the divine in human marriage and sexuality. There's a unity of diversity when a male and a female come together. And when that happens, we reflect the unity of diversity of the Creator Himself, one God in three persons, eternally in community. And we get the opportunity to reflect that here on earth. So I think the clarity I would seek to have, especially young people, is that don't think of the Bible as an instrument for prohibiting certain conduct that's icky, as opposed to protecting certain conduct that is sacred. And the reason sexuality is sacred is not because it feels good, but sexuality is sacred because it results in the creation of another person who is made beautifully in God's image, and it gives us the chance to reflect the divine. That's why it's sacred spiritually, and sacred things need to be protected. And that's what the Bible is all about, protecting the beautiful, not prohibiting the arbitrary. That's so good. As we finish up, uh, Abdu, we got about three minutes left. Uh, you write in your book, having listened to many voices and examined many worldviews, I'm convinced that Jesus' voice is the truest. So I guess the, as a last kind of last question here, how would you explain this voice to unbelievers? And then how would you also remind believers of this very voice? That's a great question. And I think there are two aspects to it. And I we have a lot of time, but I'll be quick about it because this is so profound so profound. I think that to understand how Jesus' voice, if you're non-Christian, to understand that Jesus' voice is the truest is to understand this. Jesus' voice, and when he says things, he says things that conform to reality as we know it. Truth is that which conforms to reality. Jesus' voice conforms to reality. When he said in John chapter 18, verse 37, whoever is on the side of truth listens to me, he was equating his voice with the very sound that truth makes. What that means is this. He tells us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. The world tells us you are your own savior. You can be your own avatar, your own savior, your own individual deity, whatever it might be. 
said that failure's problems in their life, you can save you. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, theft, false testimony, and slander. That's the human heart. But the good news is, is that Jesus comes to change the human heart. He doesn't tell you what you want to hear. He tells you what you need to hear, even if it makes him unpopular. That is refreshing, especially in a culture, Western culture, where politicians and celebrities tell you what you want to hear all the time. So the truest voice tells you what you need to hear. But for the Christian, that truest voice not only tells us what we need to hear, and that which conforms to reality, but also speaks to us internally. We have that inner witness of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit glorifying the Son, who tells us, you are to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation and baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I would say this, especially to young people, when you are faced with the trials that are coming, and they are in fact coming, when it's difficult to be a Christian and stand up for the truth or say, I can affirm you as a person, even if I don't agree with everything you say, you can do it lovingly, kindly, in answering each person, not each question, but you have to have the conviction that the voice of God is speaking inside of you, telling you, you are making a difference even when it looks like you aren't. No matter what's happening, no matter how much they shout at you, remember, the still small voice, ironically, is louder. And if you do it with grace and truth, that voice will become deafening. Thank you so much, Abdu. Uh, it was an honor chatting with you today. If you're listening and you enjoyed this conversation, it piqued your interest, then I'd first recommend definitely picking up Abdu's new book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. And secondly, share this conversation on your social network or with your friends or family so that others can think critically and biblically about this post-truth culture today. Uh, you can also head to abdumurray.com to find out more about Abdu and also where you can find his book. But anyways, I'll put all the links on our episode podcast page. Again, thanks so much, Abdu. I hope to talk to you again. Me too. It was a great time. That was Christian apologist Abdu Murray. Again, you can find more about Abdu, including his book, Saving Truth, at abdumurray.com. You know, I find when we talk about, you know, many different apologetic arguments, you're talking about skepticism and things like that, it really many times comes down to the question of the Bible. You know, is it a true book that claims authority over all of life? Or is it, well, just a book of history with, you know, fairy tales intermixed into it? You know, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is both inspired by God and breathed out by God. And what I mean by that is this. In uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then also in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what you see there is this, you know, this matter of factness in the sense that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's breathed out by God. Now, if you're a bit of a skeptic when it comes to, let's say, the reliability of the Bible, check out episodes 103 and 104 as we talk with New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger on this very issue. Also, next week, we chat with Simon Peacock on the same issue, the reliability of the Bible. So, all that to say, there is biblical proof that uh, obviously the Bible is what it says it is, this, you know, it's, it's breathed out by God, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but there's also great historical uh, scholarly work on the reliability of the Bible as well. 
Anyways, I want to thank those who helped support us financially for our fiscal year end in June. Seriously, thank you so much. Uh, you are the means by which God helps us move forward. But there's opportunity to give all year round. So if you're interested in helping us out in this way to start our new fiscal year strong, simply follow the instructions when you click the donate button at indoubt.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. Connect with us online this week. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story, if you have a suggestion of a topic or a person, let us know. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week, like I said, we chat with Simon Peacock on the reliability of the Bible. See y'all then. Indoubt Ministries exist to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S.